And church, let's pray together. Father, again, I have the privilege of opening your word with my family of faith. Especially today, Lord, I'm mindful that I'm not an expert. I'm not an expert in any of these things, though I've experienced them. And by your grace, I, I know to be true everything I teach. But this one is especially difficult, easy to misunderstand, easy to say the wrong thing and hurt someone unintentionally. May your grace, Lord, give comfort to those who are grieving because we all are. And thank you, Lord, for these precious brothers and sisters who come faithfully week by week and serve in our gatherings so that we can sing to you and hear from you. I love you, I thank you, and I ask you to open our hearts and our eyes that we may receive comfort and truth from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, Cross Point. I'm so glad that you've joined us. Today's going to be a little bit different. Let me explain to you, especially if you're listening and watching for the first time. My preferred approach always to teaching the Bible is to choose a book of the Bible and teach straight through it. It keeps me honest. It keeps me off hobby horses. It keeps me off my favorite topics. It prevents anyone, any time of saying, you're picking on me. What we generally do here, and we've done it for years, is select a portion or a type of Scripture in the Bible and just go right through it. Today's going to be a little bit different. And the reason is there's another powerful tool that God has provided to people who open His Word and that is not to understand a single passage, but to look across His Word to see what His Word has to say about a single subject. That's what I'd like to do today, and it's about the topic that we're all living through, even if we've not given it that name. I'm going to talk to you today about grief. As I prayed and said that it's an easy thing to get wrong and it's an easy thing to hurt someone with unintentionally, what I mean is this. We're all going through different trials because we're different people with different strengths and weaknesses, with different successes and different scars in our lives as well. We, all, we can go through the same experience and experience that thing very, very differently. We may feel it very differently. We may think of it differently because of everything that is behind us or all the life that we still have ahead of us. So I'd like to share with you a perspective, a biblical perspective, a gospel-oriented perspective on grief, not as an expert. I should be the first to tell you that in my life I have been blessed beyond anyone's expectations, far more than I ever could have expected or prayed for, certainly much more than I ever could deserve. And I can't sit beside you and talk to you about suffering and grief as someone who has suffered and grieved deeply. That's not true, at least not yet. But the good news is I'm not here to teach you about my experiences and my opinions. What I'm opening is the Bible, the very Word of God, the author of life, and the ultimate and final conqueror of death understands suffering and grief because He knows everything perfectly all of the time and because He loved us so much 
that he sent his son to live among us as one of us. The word became flesh. The eternal God at his point in time became a human being and suffered through everything that human beings suffer, including the temptation to sin with this saving difference. Jesus suffered hunger and weakness and even tasted death, but he never sinned. That's why he was able to take his life back with authority on Resurrection Sunday as promised. And that's why he can save you. And not only that, he can empathize with you. Whatever you're going through, Jesus has already experienced it. In fact, he has already tasted the death that awaits every human being on earth. And he settled it with the good news of his resurrection. That's what I mean by gospel. So I'm not speaking to you as an expert this morning. I'm speaking to you as I always do, Sunday after Sunday, as a fellow struggler. As someone who's navigating his own storms and his own uncertainties and his own family with his own work, with his own weaknesses and frailties and abilities as well as someone who's doing his best to live by the truth of what the Bible says. So the setup for this sermon is actually very simple. I'm going to teach you according to the gospel, which means the good news, that death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that I just shared with you, that's the good news. That Jesus was tempted on behalf of sinners, that he stood in sinner's place and faced every temptation that we do, but unlike us, he never broke God's law. He never offended his conscience. He never failed himself or anyone else. He never failed or offended or defied God, unlike you and me. And having done all that, he offered his life a substitute for mine and for yours, and now he's ready to save anyone who will honestly come back to him in repentance. In other words, Make a U-turn, give up on your own self-understanding, your own effort to save yourself, and entrust yourself to Jesus, and he promised he'll save you. It is he I speak of you today, and it's his gospel, it's his good news that meets grief and changes everything about it. The setup, I say, is simple. I'd like to tell you three things that the gospel does not mean relating to grief and clear away some misunderstandings and some lies, and then I'd like to close with three things that the gospel makes an absolute certainty in the face of suffering, in the face of death, in the face of grief. The three things the gospel does not mean are actually quite simple. Here's the first. The gospel does not mean that you will be shielded from trouble and loss. Being a Christian, believing in Christ, experiencing the salvation of your soul does in no way mean that you're going to be always shielded, always protected from trouble and loss in this world. Some of you are already saying, no kidding, tell me something I don't know. This is basic. This is fundamental so far. This is where we actually need to start because there is a form of hype that presents itself as gospel teaching that tells you if you come to Jesus, life is going to be awesome from then on. And it's not true. Listen to Jesus. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. How's that for a promise? Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. In this world you will have crisis. So you won't be shielded. 
In spite of Jesus, in spite of the truth of his good news, the gospel does not mean that you're going to be shielded from trouble and loss, nor does it mean that you'll always understand why you're suffering. Someone said we can go through almost anything if we understand why we go through it. That's why mothers endure the pains of pregnancy and the pain of delivery because they know that after all that pain and change and suffering, great joy awaits them if a child is born safely and happily into the world. But to be crushed by grief and suffering and not know why, that's very, very difficult. Jesus said first, in the world you will have tribulation. And Peter said regarding suffering, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. We're hearing primarily from Jesus, but we're also going to hear from other witnesses of Scripture, and we're going to hear from two women who lived through great suffering as Christians. Peter is writing to suffering Christians in the first century, and he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. I'm addressing first what the gospel doesn't mean about grief because expectations are incredibly important. If your expectations aren't right regarding suffering and regarding trouble in this world, you're going to have a lot of problems. As those of you know, if you attend this church for any length of time, I grew up in Mexico, and that means that as a kid who grew up in Mexico, there are still missing chunks in my Americana. There are things about the American experience that I simply didn't grow up with. One of those was exposed as a second grader. We were in Denton, Texas for my second grade year, and they said, today we're going to go play softball. Well, there was baseball in Mexico, and I played a little soccer in Mexico. I'd never heard of softball. But as a second grader, going on the name alone, I thought, well, this will be fun. I guess they're going to bring out a big old soft ball, and we're going to toss it gently around. Imagine my surprise when a softball actually turned out to be sort of a circular rock that someone threw with alarming velocity at my second-grade-year-old head. And then they told me, take this hard stick and hit this hard ball and run there. That kid over there is going to catch it, and he's going to throw it in your direction to make you go out before you can get there safely. Well, I didn't have a good day. My expectations weren't right. Maybe you've seen one of the great pieces of Americana, a great little movie called Three Amigos, where three actors and not especially tough-minded actors are lured into what they think is a show, and they're actually having to face real bandits. There's an amazing scene in the movie, my very favorite, when they think they're acting and the bandits mean business, and one of them shoots Steve Martin. And they have a terrible moment of realization when they realize the bad guys are using real bullets. Friends, in this life, the opposition of suffering and death is using real bullets. That's why Jesus said, with deadly 
seriousness before he went to the cross himself. In the world you will have tribulation. And why Peter, who would eventually be killed for Christ, crucified himself, says, when the fiery trial comes on you, don't be surprised as if something strange were happening to you. This is what life is. So first, you won't be shielded from suffering and loss, and secondly, you won't always understand why you're suffering. That is perhaps the hardest part to bear of suffering, as I was telling you. Listen to David a thousand years before Jesus call out to God in a moment of agony in his own life. David wrote in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Have you ever felt like that? At any point through your life and in this pandemic, have you felt forsaken by God? David did, and he wrote it down. And God's people have drawn on it since it was written. And Jesus dying on the cross would quote this very scripture as he paid for your sins and mine. You won't always understand why you're suffering. The gospel doesn't mean that you won't understand that you'll always understand it. And the gospel also doesn't mean that you won't feel suffering very deeply. Psalm 22, verse 2, David continues to speak to God in his pain and says, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Listen to it again. See if you can hear the echo of your own life in these ancient words. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Why are such forsaken sad words in Scripture? Because this is what grief and suffering does to anyone and to everyone, including those who are closest to God. David was called famously Enviably, David was called by God himself a man after God's own heart. God looked at David and said, that's my kind of guy. And David was used greatly by God and teaches us, both by his example and his life occasionally as a warning, teaches us some of the greatest things of what it means to walk with God and worship God through his psalms. And David, in a moment of his life, said to God, I cry by day and you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. The gospel of Jesus Christ does not mean that you'll always understand why you're suffering. It doesn't mean that you will be saved from suffering, and it doesn't mean that you won't feel that suffering down deep into your bones. You'll feel it. And for some of you, this sounds very familiar, and I haven't said one thing from Scripture that you don't already know, but I need to remind you of this because some of you need these as anchors in a storm, and others of you need these truths as points of navigation when the storm finally comes for you. If you can adjust your expectations and you can remember in a moment of suffering that you stand in a long line of people deeply, faithfully, perfectly loved by God who suffered anyway, it can help you adjust your own mindset. Now, let me quickly tell you the best part, and that is what the gospel does mean regarding suffering. 
It means first and most. The best part of the gospel is this. The gospel means that you will never be alone in suffering. Life tells you, sin tells you, death tells you that you will suffer, but the gospel of Jesus Christ, this faithful word of God tells you that you will never be alone in it. You may feel alone, but it, that's different. Children often feel alone when their parents are nearby, when their parents have already come to the rescue, when their parents have already planned to provide for them. Children in their weakness and in their ignorance often feel alone but aren't alone, and so it will be with you with your heavenly Father. You will never be alone in suffering. It's purposeful that Psalm 22 of these words of desolation from David are followed by the most famous psalm of all. The very next psalm is Psalm 23, in which David said, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord who in a moment of pain I thought had abandoned me and I called out to him saying, I find no answer, I find no rest. That same Lord who I mistakenly thought had left that Lord is actually my shepherd. And David said in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Mark the last line, for you are with me. The gospel doesn't mean that you won't travel through the valley of the shadow of death. You will. The gospel means that you won't travel through it alone because the Lord your God will be with you. In Psalm 91, the psalmist says, again, this is in the voice of God. God speaking now, when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. Can I bring these two things together now? The gospel does not mean that you won't be in trouble. The gospel means that God will be with you in trouble, and that makes all the difference. Listen, Psalm 91, verse 15, when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. Some of you have heard the story before, but I'd like to tell it to you again because it portrays the presence of God in the worst circumstances, perhaps, that I've ever seen in my life. I was only 30 years old and a young career missionary in Mexico. I moved back there with my family after growing up there, the son of missionary parents. And sadly, one of the very first things I had to do was try to walk pastorally as a Christian beside a young couple who, before I had arrived in Mexico, had lost a child to a very aggressive form of muscular dystrophy. The child was born, and though the child appeared perfect, there was a very aggressive genetic abnormality that weakened the child and took, its, took that little child's life within a year. I arrived in Mexico toward the end of the life of their second child, a son. Cesarine's memory will always be with me because I've never seen a better-looking baby boy. I sat beside his mother and looked at this apparently perfectly healthy, beautiful little boy who was slowly dying because of this dread, terrible disease that his parents had such an incredibly rare chance of giving him because of their own genetic makeup. And she turned to me and asked me the hardest question I've ever been asked. 
She said, Bruce, how can I go through this? I've been through this once. And I got through it then because I didn't know what it would be like. I can't do it a second time because I know what's coming. What's a 30-year-old with a healthy child of his own at home to say to that? And I said, Marina, from my reading of the Bible and from my reading of church history and the way many Christian martyrs died, fearful the night before their death, and literally singing in the flames as they killed them for their faith in Christ, I can only tell you this. I have a conviction from Scripture and from church history that in your moment of need, God will come to you and He will be with you. And it'll be enough. And I sat there and cried with them for so long that I lost track of time. I finally left the hospital. A few days later, that little boy died, and we had the saddest little service. And a year later, she stopped me in the church lobby, and she said, I want to apologize to you. <laughs> apologize to me for what? She said, a year ago, you sat with me in the hospital, and you cried, and do you remember telling me that when death came near, that God would be with me and give me peace? And I held my breath and said, yeah, I remember. She said, I, I want to apologize to you because I never told you how right you were. She said, I can't explain it. But at the end, God came near, and he gave me such peace, even in the midst of all that pain, that I want you to know it. And since you'll probably have these conversations with other people, I want you to tell them our story so that they will know that even in the worst moments, God will be with them. So there you are. I've told her story before, and I'll tell their story again because it's just one simple, human, ordinary example from an ordinary family in Mexico that everything that God has promised in His Word, including in Psalm 23, is absolutely true. You will never be alone in suffering. God will be with you. He may feel far, but He won't be far. He will be with you in trouble. And secondly, and we can only anticipate this because this isn't our actual experience yet. Second truth about the gospel is this. Your suffering won't seem like much in eternity. And I can only read that because we haven't lived it. Right here, right now, we're in the nitty-gritty. We're in the thick of it. We're in the grit and the fire and the blood and the tears and the uncertainty and the fears of this present moment. But listen to the perspective that the gospel gives telling us that our suffering, however great here, won't seem like much there. Paul wrote, I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He didn't say they didn't matter. He didn't say they weren't real. He didn't say they broke our hearts on earth. He says they're not worth comparing to the glory that is coming. He wrote again in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and Paul was a man who was lashed for Christ, who was beaten with rods 
for Christ, who was shipwrecked on three occasions, who was imprisoned and on one occasion summarily executed and left for dead, and somehow he survived it because God wasn't done. If Paul were here, you would probably cringe at the physical sight of him because he knew suffering in his body and in his soul perhaps more than anyone this side of Jesus Christ ever has. And Paul wrote, This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Listen, Christian, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, for the things, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Did you see the first line Paul said? Paul, who was scarred, blinded, beaten, and nearly killed for Christ, he said this is light and momentary affliction, and what is coming is an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He's not saying it's not real. He's not saying it doesn't matter. He's saying it's not worth mentioning when you see the glory that is coming. So Paul said at the beginning of this teaching, at the beginning of this paragraph, he said this phrase, which has rung in my heart since this thing began. Paul said, so we do not lose heart. We may lose our health. We may lose loved ones. We may lose money. But we don't lose heart because this isn't the end of the story. This suffering here, however real, however burning, however painful, Paul says, because of the empty tomb of Jesus, because Jesus really is a Savior from sin and the Savior of the world, a greater glory is coming that we won't even mention. If it even comes up, it will only be to remark on the difference of how painful that all was, but how insignificant it is now in the light of glory. And finally, this is the gospel that I'm giving to you now. This is why Jesus died on the cross. This is why Jesus screamed from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The news of the gospel is this. Life will have the last word. The good news of Jesus means that suffering, grief, and death do not win. If you were here, I trust a few of you would sit forward in expectation, and some of you who have suffered greatly would say with hope, amen. And I can't hear that, but I can say it again. Life will have the last word, not death, not suffering, not grief, because of what Jesus did on the cross, facing my sin and yours and paying for my sin and yours. Life is going to have the last word. That's why Paul wrote, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who were asleep. He's referring euphemistically to death. He's referring to Christians who have died. He said that you may not grieve as others who do, who, who, as others do who have no hope. Did you see that? Christians grieve, but not as people without hope. We have grief as real and painful as anyone's, but we grieve in a different way because in Christ we always have hope because death never has the last word and life always does. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who were asleep so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. 
For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Death doesn't win. Grief doesn't win. Suffering doesn't win. Life wins. More specifically, Jesus who gives life, he wins. Not the tomb, not the headstone, not the hospital bed, not the dread diagnosis, not the loss of child or spouse or job. None of those things, painful as they are, none of those things have the final word. Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, has the final word, and he says that he will give life. At the beginning of this sermon, I read to you this simple warning from Jesus, in the world you will have tribulation, but I didn't read you all that Jesus said. I want to read it to you now before I'm done. Jesus said in John 16, verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Listen, in the world you will have tribulation but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's my Savior. That can be your Savior. If you're not familiar with the Gospel of John, in two short chapters, Jesus is going to be arrested. John 16 is his final speech to his disciples on the way to the cross. He is willingly going to meet his executioners, and the last thing he says to them is, I'm saying all these things to you so that in me you may have peace, because in moments they're going to see him arrested. In moments they're going to see him use the power of God to rescue them so that they can escape, and he will step forward to meet his executioners. And he's telling them, they who will be persecuted, they who will be mocked, they who will be so transformed by the reality of his resurrection that they will never doubt him again. To a man, they will all go forward to suffering and death rather than take back the story that some people said they concocted, that some people said they made up. No, they knew he was real, they knew death was real, and because they met him after the resurrection, they knew eternal life was real and listened to their Savior on that deadly night, say to them and say to you, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Listen, Christian, in the world you will have tribulation, but Jesus Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome the world. You see, Jesus cried in forsakenness, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that God never would forsake you? Jesus stood in your place as your substitute, paid for your sins so that you would never be alone in suffering, and when death, death comes or when Jesus returns to judge the world, you will stand as his child and as, you will stand as a child of God and a member of God's family rather than one who has to cover his own sins and apologize for things he can no longer make right. My invitation to you, if you don't know Christ, is that you would humble yourself right now wherever you happen to be watching this and cry out to Jesus and tell him with simple humility that you're sorry for your sins. Not that you believe a preacher who cares about me, that you believe him. I'm just the messenger. 
If you forget all about me, that's fine. That's good. Most people have. But if you hear this message and you hear of this Savior and it works in your life through God's grace so that you turn to him and say, Jesus, you're right. I can't live this life alone and I certainly can't face death on my own. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry I've rebelled against God. I've failed and defied God. I've failed and hurt others. I'm sorry for all that. Please forgive me. Jesus, the Savior of the world who took those sins to the cross will save you. And if that's what God is doing in your life, I hope you'll let us know online or by just texting the word Jesus to this number, 714-868-7258. Just text the word Jesus to 714-868-7258. And Christian, Christian, this is your Savior. The Savior who knows suffering, the Savior who is acquainted with grief, who knows betrayal and loss, everything a man can lose on earth, Jesus lost. He lost it for your sake. Paul said he became poor so that you could be rich. He tasted death so that you could have life. And in this life, while you cry your way through it and while you fear your way through it, and when you may occasionally say to God, I cry out to you, but I get no answer and I find no rest at night, you can have the certainty that your Father who loves you and sent his Son for you will always say and always be with you. So if you're grieving, now I've told you as best I can, what the gospel has to do with grief. It won't spare you from all of it. You may not always understand why you're in it. You may feel it as deeply as any human being on earth, but you won't be alone. It won't be worth comparing with the weight of glory. And death and loss won't have the last word in your life because you, you brother, you sister, you have Jesus you have life. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for those who are hurting right now. Some maybe have blinked back tears as they've watched this. They've been reminded of loss. Draw their mind and heart forward to grace and to future reward. And if there's a single person watching this, Lord, and I believe there will be many, who don't know you, I pray that right now they would humble themselves and say, Jesus, I'm a rebel. I'm a lawbreaker. I've sinned so many times I can't even keep count. But I want you to forgive me. I'm asking you this morning, this afternoon, to save me. God, if they do that, I know there will be a rejoicing in heaven. I pray that they would let us know via email or through this text message that they would text your name, Lord and let us know that they have trusted you as Savior. Jesus, I pray in closing that you will do what only you can do, that you would dry every tear, you would comfort every heart, and that you would keep us faithful and loving and filled with faith and courage as we walk through this, which we may experience as the valley of the shadow of death. We will have no fear because you're with us. We love you and thank you. In Christ's name, amen.